Hello, welcome to The Bunker. I'm Andrew Harrison. It's the day after Jeremy Hunt's budget, by many accounts the most dense and perplexing budget of recent years. The measures are complex and they're hard to get a handle on. Some £9 billion of tax breaks for businesses, the controversial scrapping of the lifetime pension cap for the well-off, £5 billion on 30 hours a week of free childcare for children between nine months and three years old, a Brexit pubs guarantee, meaning that beer duty in pubs will be 11% lower than elsewhere, and a dozen new investment zones that could become 12 potential canary wharfs. Just don't let him Google what happened to Olympia in York in 1992. It usually takes a day or two for the dust to settle and the real consequences of a budget to emerge. So now we're joined by Economist, Chief Executive of the New Economics Foundation, and Bunker and Oh God What Now regular, Miata Fambole, to make sense of it all. Hello, Miata. Thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Well, full disclosure, you're also the Labour parliamentary candidate for Camberwell and Peckham. So I don't think you're going to be doing a round of applause for this budget. It's not your job. But being as objective as possible, what is your initial take on yesterday's budget? Well, look, I think the first thing I'd say is that the bar is really low, because let's remember what the last budget, that was the disastrous Liz Trust quasi Quartan budget. So against that, this is definitely a big step forward. But for me... The big takeaway, I think, wasn't from the budget. It was the Office for Budget Responsibilities assessment of the impacts of all these measures. And when they are telling us that living standards are about to drop by 2%, about 6% rather, over the course of the next two years, the biggest drop since records began, I mean, that's a really tough backdrop against which I'm judging the budget. And, you know, for that, I wanted to see two things. I wanted to see a lot more action to help people with the cost of living that's still biting now. Um, And I also wanted to see a long-term plan to kickstart the economy so that we can begin to reverse the fall in living standards. And against that, I think the budget falls short. I was surprised that there was very little to help people. So, you know, they made a decision to hold the energy price guarantee at £2,500. That was right. That was the right decision. But when bills for most people are twice what they were two years ago, that is little relief. Uh, There was nothing on a package to insulate homes. There was nothing on a measure that would help us bring down bills in the long term. Um, And then critically, very little on boosting incomes. So nothing on public sector pay, which was astounding, and nothing to help low-income families who are being pushed below the breadline. And the thing that for me, is the biggest missed opportunity is they were talking a lot about a plan for growth. There was an opportunity to take a leaf out of the book of the US and the EU, where we've got a Green New Deal in the EU. We've got Biden's big inflation reduction as measures to try and kick their economy to the green transition at pace, at scale, to create good jobs, to create the industries of the future, to help boost communities in order to drive up living standards. And we did not have that. Budgets are a political event. And what I found strange was that this morning's papers could not agree on what we've been told. The FT went with Hunt defies gloom with upbeat budget. We got Hunt waves through biggest tax burden since the war from the Times. And The Guardian had giveaway for the 1%. And you could be forgiven for thinking there were all three different countries and three different budgets. If a budget cannot be crystallised in a pithy little phrase, the way St. Nigel Lawson's was in 1987, has it failed? No, do you know what? I think... They've succeeded because I think the thing that they wanted to show is, and that's the kind of frame of the government, we are sensible grown-ups that are cracking on with the job, we're seeing problems, we're fixing them, we're technocratic, we're deliberate, 
And it does that, you know, it wasn't a particularly spectacular budget. There wasn't a big rabbit in the hat that we hadn't seen before. And there were good measures. You know, I, I for me, the, I've judged the budget against the backdrop um, and what I felt that it needed to do. But as far as budget goes, you know, the childcare measure, which we'll talk about in a minute, that was a that was an important step forward. So I think they did enough to seem sound like grown-ups in the room. I think depending on your vantage point and where you're sitting, mm. um, they probably didn't do enough to tick the boxes that you want or they fell short in particular ways. But there isn't a massive unravelling the day after. We'll see what comes after, you know, in the course of the next two days. But on that ground, so if you think about the budget that just gone before it and other budgets where at this point you can already see it completely unravelling, the opposition can, like, you know score points they've done a solid budget that it's quite hard to dismantle and they've done the thing of you know expectations are so low that just good enough and solid is enough for a lot of people yeah um, as you said, it's it's happening at the time of collapsing living standards. Uh, frozen tax allowances mean that by 2027, we're going to be paying the equivalent of an extra four pence on the basic rate. 3.2 million people are going to start paying tax for the first time and 2.1 million people will go into higher tax rates. This at a time when people have you know, been feeling the squeeze for a very long time and also when the government does not have a reputation for looking out for the tax interests or of the of of the lower earner this can't be in error it's such a terrible look in a run up to election surely it is um and i think that i think there are two things that are going on i think there has been a trend i think if you think about successive budgets of giving handouts to the rich um and here it was the pension tax relief, uh, which is just a bizarre measure. But if we think about the last budget, it was that cut to the top rate. The budget after that, it was reversing the banker surcharge. So when there is money to go spare, there is always a proclivity to gear it towards, you know, not just the top 25%, but the 1%, yeah. which is quite incredible and says a lot about, I think, the politics at play. But then I think the other side of it is, you know, tax rates are the highest they have been in this country for many years. To put it in perspective, they are about, you know, the levels that we see in a lot of Western Europe. Europe. I think the thing that goads people here is if you're paying more, but you're getting European or, you know, Nordic style services, you know, you'd make your peace with it. But it's the fact that people are paying more and our hospitals are in crisis and on their knees. Our schools are creaking. Our care system is broken. Our trains and buses don't work. So what are we putting that extra money in? And I think that is their problem. And they can say, look, it's crisis, it's this and that. But there was huge mismanagement and economic mismanagement and mismanagement of public services that means that people are paying more, but they can't see the benefits of it. And that creates a lot of anger and resentment, particularly when people are struggling. And then if you throw on top of that, this, you know, the, the, the track record of just waste, dodgy contracts going to pals, you know, it, it, it's, it leaves a bitter taste in people's mouths. And I think that's the problem for them going into an, another election. Well, you just mentioned the, the pension allowance cap. That, that was a bit of a, a rabbit out of the hat. Um, no one expected it. Uh, it's described as aimed at getting older people um, back to work. But according to the Times, it's going to cost £2.7 billion, and it's estimated to only bring 15,000 people back into the workforce. Firstly, I mean, 
will it work? And 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 secondly, you know, why is so much effort going uh, towards supposedly getting older people back into the workforce, but it, but in fact, obviously, just shoveling money towards older people when our our kind of employment issues are, you know, it's amongst younger a younger workforce and a, and a worse off workforce. It's a very, very bizarre policy. I'll come to the specific of the policy and then I'll say a little bit about the drive to sure. get people back into work. I think on the policy, I mean, they're trying to get away with it by saying this is a measure to, that's directed at do- doctors in particular and to encourage doctors not to retire. I don't think it washes, quite frankly. And when you think about the cost benefit, I think it's something like for every one person they get back into work, it costs the taxpayer something like £66,000. It just makes absolutely no sense. And if your real aim is to try and incentivise doctors to stay on in the profession, fix the crisis in the NHS, bring in more nurses, bring in more health workers, because in the end, it's the pressure of the job. It's the pressure of working in a system that is creaking that means that many are leaving the profession. So even by the metrics of the thing they say they're trying to help, which, you know, there have been calls by some doctors to try and deal with this. It is a very expensive way to try and do it, one. And secondly, it doesn't go to the root cause of the problem, which is a fundamental crisis in the NHS. I think in terms of the kind of the bigger drive to get workers back into the labour market, for me, the whole debate is missing the point. So yes, there are about 9 million people who are inactive. Now, some are inactive because they're studying others are inactive because um, they've got disabilities and it you know and they don't want to enter the workforce but there are many people that do so there is something that needs to be done but one of the biggest drivers particularly since the pandemic has been people with uh, long-term ill health and actually the measures you know there were some measures that might begin to deal with that in there particularly the measures around trying to provide universal support um, employment support, £4,000 per person to help them get into work if they've got an in long-term illness or disability. But let's see, it will be in the implementation. But the critical point for me is that if you want to attract people into the labour market, you need to make it easier for them, but you also need good quality work. And we're not talking about that. And part of the challenge that we have is that we've got poor quality work that doesn't pay enough. And that's not a draw for people who have a choice, for example, or people who need to make that jump in order to do it. So I think that needs as much attention as merely thinking about the sticks and carrots to get people into the labour market. And by the way, that pension policy is like the most bizarre policy that will be a drop in the ocean in terms of impact, given the scale of the problem they're trying to fix. Yeah, but it does go straight to an express headline about pensions bonanza for you older voter who reads the express. Yeah. Hunt seems only able to make the giveaways he's making and be able to stick within his own financial rules by really toughening cuts on on public spending. There's the sort of talk of like ten percent cuts around uh, you know across the board in government departments. Is that realistic? And, and what will that mean? Because we've you know we're thirteen years in some of the most severe cuts we've ever seen in my lifetime and now talking about more in order to finance a pension giveaway. So in short, it's not. um, And we um, at New Economics Foundation did some uh, analysis coming out of the budget. And because of assumptions that they've made about the rate of inflation, uh, we think there's about £22 billion worth of cuts that's hidden in the budget. And, you know, the truth is any fat in the system has been cut away a long time ago. And if you look to drive in further cuts, it is hard to see how you do that in the context of hospitals that are at breaking point, in the context of schools where teachers are having to bring in pencils for their students, 
in the context of the fact that we haven't paid any of our doctors, our nurses, our public sector workers enough for about 13 years. It's it's inconceivable to think about how you do that and how you square that. And it's quite interesting hearing the debate across the spectrum that actually, you know, even people on the conservative side, so like it's not it's not 2010 where we thought there were things that we could cut. We are now at the bare bones and you risk the social settlement, you risk things that are foundational to the way our society works if you try and cut more. You know, my view is that this is, uh, if you like, a political trap. So a lot of the cuts they've uh, backloaded to after the election, they're trying to make things difficult uh, for the incoming government, should there be a change of government. This is not about things that they're trying to do now. So they, they any give, they will try and protect that, this side of an election, and then almost leave it as someone else's problem to fix. I want to get into the the industrial policy, which was the thing that Hunt tried to tried to emphasise in the headline. Um, this nine billion pound of capital allowances reform for business. The Office uh, for Budget Responsibility thinks that it will actually have no positive effect in the long run. It will simply be moving money forward a few years. Um, now, you understand this far better than I do. Explain what's happening here. The starting point for this is the rise in corporation tax. And they are basically trying to mitigate that rise in corporation tax, which is to the tune of about 15. Um, so it rises from 19% uh, to 24% at a tune of about 15 uh, billion. And so this essentially says for every pound you spend, every pound of profit you spend in investment, we will essentially give you a tax deduction uh, to the tune of about, we think, 9 billion, possibly 11 billion. And that, in theory, is supposed to incentivize businesses to say, if we've got profits, we should spend that profits on investing because we basically don't get it taxed. The issue is they've done it for three years. And so what that will do is, you know, if you're a smart business and, you know, let's put it in the context of the fact that business um, investment is at a low and it's low relative to other countries. By the way, one of the drivers of that is Brexit Mm -hmm. um, and all the uncertainty around that that they didn't mention. But even but, you know, so there is something that they need to respond to. And what they're hoping is that, you know, businesses will suddenly start investing a lot more. Now, what will happen is that businesses will bring forward investment they were going to do anyway, which I think is good in terms of boosting the economy in the short term, but it's no additional benefit to the economy. So you're spending nine billion potentially on uh, you know, an expensive policy for investment that may have happened anyway, that might just be brought forward a little bit. And then after the three years, they go back to doing what they were before and the economy is no better off. So, you know, my argument here is. You definitely need to do stuff to stimulate business investment. If you were serious about that, you would tackle Brexit and the relationship with Europe. You would be thinking about the long-term framework you put in place, certainty. It's been so chaotic. And the thing that business investment hates is chaos, You when you don't know if you're coming or you're going. And then the third is that you crowd it in with a really ambitious long-term plan. That's what Biden is doing in the US. That's what the EU are doing, where they're saying, we're making a bet on the green transition. We're making a bet on these industries that we can see will be the industries to drive our economy in the future. We're going to put public investment into this to crowd it in and stimulate, and then businesses will come. But if you have none of that other stuff, and by the way, you know, the the things that matter to business, a transport system that works, an education and skill system that can skill up your people, your work is healthy, so you have a healthcare system that actually operates. If those things are all floundering, 
have the tax allowances you want, it won't generate more investment. And that's the problem they have. So they've recognised the problem. They've, to, you know, to quote Keir Starmer, put a sort of sticking plaster response, but they haven't done the bigger package that would actually get to the meat of the problem. These 12 enterprise zones that uh, Hunt mentioned, I feel like I've been hearing about these uh, all my life. Um, what exactly is behind them? Because it seems extremely ideological. You know, low and zero tax development areas with no democratic accountability tends to get you places like Canary Wharf where... There is no real community there, isn't there? There's, you know, the entirely artificial spaces with no kind of local democracy. Yeah, so oh, this is an idea that's been kicking around for a little while. And if I'm being generous, what's the idea? The idea is that you essentially try to crowd an investment that wouldn't come into places that have been held back that are struggling by incentivizing businesses with either tax breaks or by clustering them together. So in theory, there is something there. I think in practice, the two problems are what we've learned is that all they tend to do is displace. So investment that might have gone, you know, 50 miles up the road suddenly goes into the enterprise zone, but it doesn't do much more for the economy. Um, and then the second thing for me is like, unless you do other things alongside it. So if you are cutting local government spending, if you aren't investing in transport, in social infrastructure, if all of that stuff doesn't happen, you can create these zones. You might get businesses that, you know, decide to go there rather than go somewhere else. But you're not growing the pie. You're not stimulating your local economy and you're not generating the benefits that you want across the economy. And that is the challenge with them. Economics, see people on the right love it. I think the evidence is really sketchy around it. Um, and the reason why, you know, Treasury is always really sceptical about it is they just see it as displacement. It doesn't help the real economy. And for me, the sort of final thing I would add is there is a massive job around building up communities around levelling up. The majority of jobs in a lot of those communities tend to be in SMEs for starters, but they will also be in foundational sectors, retail, hospitality, care, public services, sectors that aren't sexy, but they are the big jobs generators and they're the big you know, economic generators in those areas. And these enterprise zones very rarely speak to those or find a solution for them or create ways in which they can thrive and be successful. And until you have industrial strategies that do that, you are not going to level up places in this, at the scale and the pace that we need to. Let's talk briefly about the childcare thing, which is one of the things that it did initially go down very well because this is something that's been enormously neglected by successive governments seems to be slightly falling to pieces in, in, in public. This is a £5 billion plan um, to give 30 hours of uh, free childcare to kids between, I think it's nine months and three, is it? Uh, but the early years of Alliance have been saying that it's actually far, far short of what's needed. For some age groups, the one is only 10% of the shortfall and that the Chancellor hasn't even consulted with parents. Uh, you've got kids. What do you think of it? Yeah, so... Because I have young kids and because the pain and the expense of childcare is still very, very visceral in my <laughs> mind, um, but the fact that childcare is at the top of the political agenda is a good thing. You know, there are many mums that have been campaigning because the frustration has been the system is so broken and yet no one in Westminster seems to care or be talking about this. And to put it in context, the costs are massively prohibitive. So you know, against the average income, it's up to 60% of the average income. A family of two could be spending something like 30% of their income on childcare. And that's about four times higher than in Germany, in, you know, Norway, Denmark, Iceland. 
you know, so it, there's a massive problem here. And the step towards free childcare for one and two year olds is a really positive step. So definitely. The problem is that unless you fund the supply side properly, what this does is that it suddenly increases demand for childcare and the sector can't cope and it will collapse. So what a lot of nurseries are doing at the moment, because there isn't enough money in the system for three to four-year-olds, because the government doesn't basically provide enough subsidies, is that they're sort of jacking up the price for one and two-year-olds to cross-subsidise those older children. If you suddenly expand that free childcare offer, but you're not putting enough of a subsidy because you're not funding it at the right level, the sector is going to crumble. And by the way, there've been like, I think it's like 5,000 settings have collapsed um, uh, recently. There is a massive problem. And the worry for the sector is you haven't given us enough money to respond to this entitlement. And so it will put us under pressure and many of us will buckle. And that's their problem. For me, you know, so my organisation has been campaigning for universal childcare. We look across to what the Nordic countries are doing, the Scandinavian countries are doing, and we think that that is the right model where you say free universal childcare because it helps people into the labour market, there are economic benefits to it, but critically it is vital for the life chances of kids. And this is a step in that direction, but let's be really clear, it's 30 hours for 38 weeks. So the practicalities of what they're doing are problematic, but the fact that we are now talking about childcare and that we've won the argument that there is an economic benefit to investing in childcare, for me, is an important win. Finally, a large part of the audience, possibly the most important part of the audience for this is Conservative MPs. And they are they remain uh, furious that uh, Britain has its highest level of taxation since the Second World War. They remain furious that Hunt hasn't uh, reversed the corporation tax rise, uh, which was gone from 90 percent to I think it's 24, 25 percent, isn't it? Has this done anything to shore up his position within the Conservative Party? I think it has. And I think it's been quite interesting to see how muted the attacks have been from their own side. I was doing Peston with Jake Berry, who was of the kind of Liz Trust camp. And actually, he was incredibly, uh, you know, maybe like through gritted teeth, complimentary about the budget. And I think the thing that has won him some space is it was and came across as a grown-up budget that talked to issues that the Conservative Party cares about. So growth, fixing the problems with the economy, was optimistic, in my view, a bit too optimistic given the the projections, but was optimistic and, and gave them something to rally around. And critically, it did do the job of, if you like, shooting Labour's fox, because Labour was setting up to make childcare a massive offer. They've now done that by closing the ground. So I think It was a smart budget that has sort of calmed some of the wranglings. But I think there is an expectation that the budget before the election, there will have to be something on tax. Um, And so the the job now for uh, Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt is how you create the space to give that giveaway. Um, And then the question, I think, for the Labour Party will be, what do you do with that? Um, Do you roll in behind it, even at the expense of... Uh, your schools and your hospitals collapsing because if you win, you'll be the one that will be sort of taking on that sort of financial settlement. So I suspect that's where they'll end up in terms of the politics. Yeah, Safamala, thanks very much. That's uh, you, I, I feel I understand things a bit better now. Thanks for having me on. 
listeners, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us. There were no tax breaks at all for Britain's essential podcast industry in the budget, but you can help us to rescue the British economy by supporting us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the links in the show notes to find out how you can get episodes early and without ads, plus merchandise and much more. Thanks for listening. I commend this podcast to the house. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Andrew Harrison. The producers were Alex Reese and Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. With audio production by me, Jay Bailey. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>